David grieves the loss of life. A reading from 2 Samuel chapter 12, beginning with verse 15. The Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had born for David, and he became very sick. David begged God for the boy. He fasted and spent the night sleeping on the ground. The senior servants of his house approached him to lift him up off the ground, but he refused, and he wouldn't eat with them either. On the seventh day, the child died. David's servants were afraid to tell him that the child had died. David wouldn't listen to us when we talked to him while the child was still alive, they said. How can we tell him that the child has died? He'll do something terrible. But when David saw his servants whispering, he realized that the child had died. Is the child dead? David asked his servants. Yes, they said, he is dead. Then David rose from the ground, bathed, anointed himself, and changed his clothes. He entered the Lord's house and bowed down. Then he entered his own house. He requested food, which was brought to him, and he ate. Why are you acting this way? His servants asked. When the child was alive, you fasted and cried and kept watch. But now that the child has died, you get up and eat food? David replied, while the child was alive, I fasted and wept because I thought, who knows? The Lord may have mercy on me and let the child live, but he is dead now. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? No, I am going to where he is, but he won't come back to me. Then David comforted his wife, Bathsheba. He went to her and slept with her. She gave a birth to a son and named him Solomon. The Lord loved him and sent word by the prophet Nathan to name him Jedidiah because of the Lord's grace. Here ends the third reading. So now, good and gracious God, in these moments, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts in this room together be found pleasing in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Grace to you, brothers and sisters, and peace from the Lord Jesus Christ. Today's the sixth uh, message in our series from the life of David. And as we noted last week, David holds up a kind of mirror for us. We look at him, we see ourselves. Mostly, we see what is beautiful. And up until our last encounter, I think we were basically glad for our human kinship with David. But then his story took a dark and tragic turn. Last week, we saw David the king send for Bathsheba, who was married to Uriah. He takes her has sex with her, then arranges for the murder of her husband. And we're not prepared for this unthinkable behavior from David. But just as astonishing, God forgives him. How could a God who is righteous and just let a murderer remain king and even say to him, your sin is taken away? These mysteries are almost more than we can comprehend. But there are still other mysteries. Having seen the horrible mystery of guilt 
and the holy mystery of grace, today we turn to the heart-rending mystery of death. David's child is dying. Just a newborn infant, Bathsheba's little boy, is deathly ill and losing its struggle for life. Nathan the prophet said he would die, and the story begins with these terrible, terrible words. The Lord made David's young son very sick. The Lord made the child sick. What do we do with that statement? Is this to say that God would punish the guilty by punishing those whom the guilty love? Is it God's way to correct us by striking those we care for? Would God kill a child? Emphatically, no, no, and no. The story says that God did, but elsewhere in Scripture, the writers take pains to stop that kind of thinking. The prophet Ezekiel says, The Lord said to me, What is the meaning of this proverb that you repeat, that the parents eat sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge? For I will not punish the children for their parents' sin. I will not punish parents for their children's sin. We may afflict our children with consequences of our behavior, but God does not. And yet... This newborn is dying just as Nathan said he would. This is a mystery to us. So let's come alongside David again. And let's watch this so-called man after God's heart. And let's see what we might learn today, even in this seemingly unredeemable situation. Today, David shows us again how very full of surprises he is. Even though Nathan had said that when the child was born, he would die, David pours himself completely into pleading for the life of this child. For seven days, he begs God to relent and take this illness from the baby. He goes without food. He refuses the simple pleasure of lying on his own bed to sleep at night. We see him curled up in the fetal position. He cries, he prays, he begs. Later in verse 22, David tells the motive and rationale for his pleading. He's hoping to change God's mind. He's hoping that God will see his heart and by grace bring a different outcome here. Does David actually expect that he can change the mind of God? I mean, why not accept the inevitable? Whatever else David teaches us here, he shows us that people after God's own heart Don't give up on the openness of God to change what appears to be already determined. People after God's heart will find the audacity to pound on God's door, even at midnight. And scripture dares to claim that God listens to people who protest, and God sometimes does, in fact, surprise us with some new intervention. I think this text invites us to be unafraid to pray irrational prayers, even in the face of seemingly inevitable outcomes. Tim and I have prayed such prayers this very week for a dear friend, Brenda, who appears to be in the final days of her fight with pancreatic cancer. And yet we're pounding on God's door in the face of this seemingly inevitable outcome. Didn't Jesus say, keep knocking at midnight on that closed door? 
Didn't he plead with God in his own darkest hour, take this bitter cup from me? God is always open to our side of the conversation. With God, anything can happen. Even so, after seven days of David fasting and praying and crying, the baby dies. What happens when the answer we get isn't the one we had hoped and prayed for? Well, whatever prayer may be, it is not a guaranteed transaction. Prayer is a conversation that is also full of mystery. The child dies. David's servants eventually work up the nerve to tell him. And what he does next is so surprising. In traditional culture, this now would be the time to grieve, the time to mourn. But David, to everyone's astonishment, gets up, washes his body, changes his clothes, worships God, then sits down to dinner. After seven days of nothing but crying and fasting and pleading now upon hearing the worst possible news, he gets up and immediately starts gathering his life back together. And his advisors are dumbfounded by this. They say, sir, what are you doing? When the child was alive, you wept and fasted, but now that your child has died, you've stopped mourning and are eating again? When the child was alive, said David, I fasted, wept, prayed, for I thought, who knows, maybe the Lord will be gracious to me and let the child live. But now the child has died, so why should I fast? Can I bring him back? I'm going to go to him someday, but he cannot return to me. I think David is showing us here what the edges of acceptance look like. Accepting the loss as it is and accepting life as it yet may be. David's heart is broken, but he's moving. He grieves this death, but he chooses life. He makes the choice to accept his losses and his life and to hold them both together. See, the secret is in holding them both together. Barbara Brown Taylor tells of being in a museum one day, and on her way out, she stopped in the gift shop to pick up some note cards. And she was standing in line at the cash register when she noticed on the counter a glass bowl full of smooth silver pebbles. Each little thumb-sized pebble had a word etched into its surface, and even without picking them up, she could see that one said hope and another said love. And Barbara had a friend whose husband had just died, and she figured her friend could use some pebbles like this. And so she plunged her hand down into the bowl to see what else she might fish up. Tears, said the next pebble. Loss, said the next. And Barbara thought, gee, my friend already has enough of those. So she put them back and kept fishing, but over and over again, she kept bringing up handfuls of tears and loss, which outnumbered the other pebbles by about 20 to 1. Apparently, everyone had enough of those or wanted nothing to do with them. So Barbara spread her happy pebbles out on the counter, hope, love, gratitude, 
But then she looked back at, at the tears and loss left in the bowl, and she thought, you know, maybe that's the problem. Nobody wants to own them. So she added one of each to her little collection. And she said, I almost felt cruel giving them to my friend, but when I did, her sad mouth softened when she saw them. She may not have wanted them, but she knew they were hers. Barbara goes on to say, tears belonged next to love. And hope took on more luster when nestled against loss. Holding the pebbles together in one hand turned out to be exactly what my friend needed most. Death has come to David's house. He has grieved, and there's going to be a lot more grieving to come. But now he rises and he chooses to embrace the life he still has chooses to hold both his loss and his life together. You know, Michelangelo's great sculpture of David, probably the most recognizable sculpture in the world, has become a symbol of strength and youthful human beauty, which makes the history of this sculpture all the more fascinating. The sculpture of David is actually made from a block of marble that another sculptor had attempted earlier to make something of, but found it unworkable and abandoned it. Reportedly, a second sculptor then tried, but he couldn't work with the stone, and so the huge block of marble just sat on its side in the yard of the cathedral workshop exposed to the elements. It was 40 years after the first attempt that 26-year-old Michelangelo was given the chance to carve David from that same marble. And he worked with the limits of the stone, and he worked around the cuts already made by other hands. And from his work emerged the great masterpiece of David. And I think that's a pretty fair illustration of what God did with David during his lifetime and what God is still able to do with us if we're open to it. Again and again, God comes to make a surprising beginning, carving out new hope for us. So when you and I are facing terrible grief, as all of us do, how do we find our way to accept what's in our hands? If we take our cue from David, we do several things. We care for ourselves, as David did, who dressed himself and nourished his body with food to affirm that even in his pain, his life was a gift. And we turn toward God with our pain, our anger, our anguish, as David did, who went and poured both his praise and his pain to God to the God who knows what to do with both. And like David, we also go and see about others who may be needing us. After drying his own eyes, David goes to comfort Bathsheba, who also is grieving. And this is what choosing to live looks like. And this, in the end, is how we survive great loss. 
And what do you know? Today's story gives us one more surprise. God gives a new life between David and Bathsheba, and another child is born. And through the line of this child, centuries later, another child is born to a woman named Mary. David and Bathsheba give their child a name. We know his name is Solomon, but in Hebrew, what they named him was Shalom, peace. And isn't that fitting? Those who are willing to hold both grief and hope in the same hand will find to our astonishment and joy a kind of newborn peace from the hand of God. And so, good and gracious God, you are our comforter and strength and peace. Please keep us from every killing despair. Help us to accept our losses and our lives. By your grace, let us rise with Jesus the Christ to new life and to your good future. And it's in his name that we ask this. Amen.